Hello, hello, and welcome back to Motorsport Now. Apologies for the very long delay since my last interview back in I don't know when. It's been an absolutely mental year for me so far, so I can only apologise, but it's just been full. I've been so lucky that I've been able to compete again after the crazy year or two of COVID, which unfortunately is now um, showing its ugly face again. So I hope everyone has had the best Christmas they possibly could have had, um, and that you're safe and well. So this year I have been so lucky and I was invited very last minute to be one of the end of stage reporters for the World Rally Championship. It was a phone call two weeks before Kenya and I set off on a plane, very uh, excited and very naive, but I feel like I've learned a hell of a lot since then. And if I do have some time, I will do a podcast just about that experience. And also Rally Finland and the Acropolis Rally that they also invited me back to to cover the end of stage again and oh my god I interviewed Tommy Mackinnon oh my god uh, I know that's uh it was only like one question but still I've done it so that's pretty cool I never thought I'd do that in my lifetime and alongside that I've been competing in the BXCC which is an off-road championship that was wild but I absolutely loved it I really enjoy the complete different new challenge and I've also done a couple of rallies in my Subaru Impreza and also tried to organise me getting married to my fiancé, which is going to be hopefully next year, if, uh, yeah, COVID doesn't stop that too. But either way, uh, coming back to the WRC, because that's what I um, am here to talk about, really. Well, actually, in fact, even better than that, I have one of the best ladies in the sport to interview. Um, and you'll hear what she had to say on this podcast. It's Bex Williams, one of the key voices of the WRC. I did not know half of it. Honestly, you're gonna to listen to this and be absolutely wowed. She is so humble as well, and she comes from such a different beginning from what you would expect. I don't want to ruin it. So all I will say is, she is so talented and such a hard-working individual. I witnessed how hard she worked, having been on those three WRC events, and I just think she's great super fangirl so just putting it out there I'm sorry this is not my best interview because I think I was just excited and really just wanted to listen to what she had to say it was brilliant. Bex was the person that I called before I went to Kenya and was like hi Bex I know I've never spoken to you before but I heard you a lot on the WRC TV and I think you're great but could you just please help me because I don't know really what I'm doing yet and she was so kind and offered so much brilliant advice and um, I'm ever grateful for that. So without further ado, here is the amazing Bex Williams. Sorry, last thing, Bex was babysitting her dog Chip at the time and he had had a bit of a rough night. He'd been um, unable to get to sleep because there were some really bad storms the night before and it kept him up and he was a bit scared. So she was uh, keeping him close and looking after him. So you will hear him every once in a while, but it just shows that she's a super caring person. Anyway, here's Bex. I'm quite nervous, you know, about interviewing you because you're like this goddess of interviews. No. no. <laughs> I, you're like the one that, because I was had to do so much research before I did all the, you know, the, the last minute end of stage stuff. And yeah. I was watching to see how you did stuff and listen to how you do stuff. And now I'm having to interview. It's just a bit of like a... <laughs> but I'm going to start right at the beginning. Okay. Did you grow up in a motorsport household? Like, where did it come from, this love of motorsport? Because you know everything, I feel, about motorsport. So where did it start? Not at all. Neither of my parents drove a car. I had two older brothers. They didn't drive either. 
I was the first person in my family at 20 to pass my driving test. <laughs> so motorsport definitely wasn't in in the family. Cars weren't even in the family. But I think it's because they weren't. That's why I was interested. I always wanted a car. I always wanted to be able to drive. And the reason I didn't do it when I was 17 and you know immediately ready to do it is because I well, we just couldn't afford it as a family. That was not a priority. And my education was a priority and studying and going to university. And we, you know, I saved for that. We saved for that. And I started to learn to drive when I was in university. Um, but yeah, it was, it's weird because, you know, so many people who work in motorsport come from a motorsport background, but there is not a single person in my immediate or even kind of close family who who competed at all or who were interested in the fact that none of my family drove as well is is kind of the cherry on on the cake really I remember my brother being given a car um an Austin Allegra or Allegro Allegra geez I can't remember anyway he was given this car and he never learned to drive well he did he did eventually about five years after I did um and I, I was fascinated with this car. I was like, I can't, I can't, literally, I cannot wait to get behind the wheel and have some independence. But, you know, I, I would look at the gears and think, I, I have no idea how these work. What, what are these? What's the gear stick do? I was so completely wet behind the ears with everything car-wise, everything mechanically. But then I think that fueled a lot in me to find out more. And, I, yeah, and eventually I did. But, you know, even, even to the point where you know we didn't go to motorsport events I went to one as a child which was when I was four and my brothers who were interested in rallying took me to what would have been then the RAC back in the day in 1981 so that was the year Ari Vatna won the championship um, and that was a pretty special year but I was so so little that I just don't remember it other than lights I remember the lights in the forests and I remember the wellies that I was wearing because they were pretty special and I loved them. <laughs> but <laughs> other love than that, that, love that. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't have another, you know, motorsport memory. And my brothers were kind of into rallying. They'd watch it on the TV when it was on and I would watch it with them. And you, you know, I was like, oh, this, you know, it's exciting. I like it. I grew up watching Formula One as well. Um, but yeah, in, in my youth, there was there was nothing that I can say that piqued my interest and that really put me on the road to, to loving rally other than being at that event and loving the lights. But, I, you know, that doesn't give you a, a career or drive you towards a career in rally at all. That came a lot, lot later. I'm absolutely amazed. I'm sure everyone listening will be absolutely gobsmacked as well. I can't believe that. What were you going to do, to do at university? What was your degree? Uh, so my degree was, it was a mixed degree at Exeter University, which was, I'm trying to remember what exactly it was called. So it was two things. It was basically media arts with journalism and then theatre because I love to act. That was another big thing of mine. I wanted to be an actress when I was growing up. So that was my minor, but my major was was journalism. And I originally, when I went to uni and through my kind of later years in school, I wanted to to make films that's what I wanted to do I always knew I wanted to work in production in some way shape or form and never in any way did I want to be in front of a camera even though I was interested in acting and I wanted to be an actress when I was very young as I grew up I realized 
I wasn't such a fan of people watching me, which isn't great when, when you're an actress. No, it's slightly different from how you, but the thing is that's kind of worked out quite well for you with the commentary, isn't yeah. it? It has worked out really well. I mean, I think out of the group that I went to university with, I'm probably the only one who's actually using their degree <laughs> right now from the journalism aspect. It was really interesting because we learned, A, we learned how to make films, but I learned about photojournalism. Um, I learned, I mean, it was the early days of people building websites. So I learned how to do that as well. It was all linked in with journalism and, and production. And I thought, okay, I can be the next Steven Spielberg here. I can go out, I can make movies. That's, that was in my head and that's what I wanted to pursue. And when I left uni, I, I went to work straight away. I think I left uni on a Tuesday and by the Thursday, because I'm such a, a worker, a worker bee. I was working in our local chocolate factory because I wanted to earn money straight away. I was like, I need, you know, I need to get, I don't want to lie back, enjoy the summer. I need to just get on the kind of pedal of, of working and, and working out where my life is going. I need some money in the bank to be able to do that. Um, yeah, so I was Willy Wonka for a little while, making lots of Christmas biscuits and Christmas chocolates. So if you're eating any of those now from like Marks and Spencer's or Tesco's, your selection boxes, back in the day, I was responsible for wow. making I mean, to be fair, that is... That spreads happiness. I mean, what a role, you know. I know, I know. <laughs> and, you, you know, I thought at the time, I was like, oh, this is heaven. I'm going to work in a chocolate factory. And the first line they put me on was uh, they were doing a new thing, cheese biscuits. And that was the first thing I worked on and not really been able to eat a cheese biscuit since from that experience. But then I worked <laughs> on the good stuff, like um, not as good as obviously the Tunnock's tea cakes, but these um, tea cakes, which were covered in coconut. I worked with those, liked those. Rocky biscuits, all kinds of things anyway. Um, but while I was there, it was a lot of thinking then about, you know, what happens next? Where, where do I go now? Um, and I, I sent a note to BBC Wales for work experience just to go in and see if I could do, you know, work experience there. And I knew that would be obviously unpaid. And they were really good. They were like, you know, come in, come and spend the week with us. And I worked in lots of different departments within that week. I worked in the drama department, music, um, on the Welsh set with Publicum. Um, it was really varied and it was like, oh, this is a really good insight into how it all works. And I did a little bit with news, but it was when I went into the sports department and you could feel the, just the buzz of sport and live sport and the positivity of the stories that really kind of excited me a lot and I, I started then to kind of push the drama part of me and theatre part of me was moving rapidly away and it was like oh yes yeah, sport because I was a massive rugby fan anyway I mean if you're Welsh and you're not a rugby fan it's 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 a bit weird isn't it, <laughs> it is very weird. <laughs> so you know I, 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 <laughs> shush that's Chip in the background he's a rugby fan as well yeah. Um, I, he, <laughs> he's um, yeah, he's a huge rugby fan. Anyway, I, I, I kind of thought I wanted to be involved in sport and the week disappeared very quickly in BBC Wales. And then I was very, very lucky that they called me the next week and asked me to go and work in a department, actual paid work. So I went to work in the drama department then and I was there for about three weeks and then this is this is the way it happens and I think this is the way it happens in life you know you you do something and and then all of a sudden people go oh oh we heard you did a good job doing that can you come and work with us and that's what happened in various departments in BBC Wales they were always short little contracts um and then I ended up working on a, a radio show 
um, called Tutti Frutti, which was a quiz show. And I was the announcer and the scorer. And that was really bizarre. It was like, I'm doing all these really amazing things, but they were always short-term contracts. So you could never then say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to try and buy a house or whatever, because you'd have three weeks worth of money and then it would go and you didn't know if something else was coming in. So I looked for a job in Cardiff and I was very lucky to find a sports agency in Cardiff who were working in motorsport and rugby and sailing, all kinds of sports. And I went, I went to work there. I applied for a job there just as an admin role. And when I got interviewed and they realized what my kind of my background was with my degree, um, they they said, oh, you know, maybe you can try out and, and be a, a reporter if, if you fancy it. You know, we work on British touring cars, uh, British Rally Championship, World Rally Championship. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. You know, this kind of this motorsport that I've been following through my teenage years, you know, <laughs> whether it be watching TV coverage or looking at CFAX updates <laughs> back in the day, it was like, oh, this, this is possible. And that really reignited, I would say, even if it was a small flame when I was younger, a love of, of motorsport that I kind of followed, but always on the fringes. I would never say I was an absolute rally fan during my teens. I, that would be wrong to say I wasn't but I would follow what was going on just as I would right now with tennis. <laughs> like I, I like tennis, but I'm not a huge fan, but I follow exactly what's going on. But then when you, you actually get the opportunity to work in it and to see the sport, you know, kind of real upfront, it, it bites you as, as it does for so many people who come and, and watch rallies. Once you're bitten by it, you know, that's it. And, you know, I knew from, from that day, from seeing my, you know, my first actual rally, being there, watching, spectating, working on it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I ended up working in touring cars for two years, reporting on circuit racing first. That journey. So it's interesting you said that So you started watching rallies. Is that how you started doing your research before you went more into motorsport? Did you go and watch and see and try and feel what was going on? Yeah, I watched a lot of rallies here in South Wales, um, which weren't, you know, work related, uh, just because I, you know, picked up, the, you know, more of the bug from actually working. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's interesting, because, you know, when when some people who come in, or and certainly I did, well, you know, when I came into to work on an event, within the sports agency I was in, it was very, um, throw you in at the deep end. So, you know, I would get told, OK, you're going to go away this weekend. I, there'd be like a, a senior reporter with me. But you, you, let's say, for instance, one of the first rallies I covered <laughs> was uh, the Network Q Rally of Great Britain, 1999. <laughs> and, you know, you don't get pretty much more major than that. And I remember thinking, I am so out of my depth here. What are they thinking? But my boss, Greg Strange, who was a massive rally man, was like, yeah, you can, you can do it. You know, you've, you followed rally and I had followed it all of my life. But like I said, I, I could never say I had posters on the wall or anything. Thanks. I am so sorry. I've just, my doorbell has just, oh, how embarrassing. Very no, no, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm so sorry. Thanks. I am so sorry about that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> don't worry. It's, it's happened to me plenty of times. Don't worry. There we go. He was barking anyway. So it's perfect timing. What was I saying? Greg Strange, my boss at the time, who was a huge rally man, um, he kind of he liked throwing people in at the deep end, but only if he knew that they would be able to swim. 
he didn't throw people in at the deep end who he knew was were going to fail but you didn't know that yourself at the time so he sends me off to to the event which he's at and there's another senior reporter there and Basically, our job at the time was doing radio reports. So for local BBC radio stations across the UK, every BBC region has their their local radio station. And also um, for independent radio stations as well, you would do 30 second reports into their sports bulletins on a Saturday. Or you would do a longer chat with the presenter, depending on what the radio station wanted. I remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, I've got I really have to, you know, gen up on everything completely before this event. And I felt massive, massive pressure going into it. But then it becomes a bit like a conveyor belt. You you start doing your first 30 second report and then you're into another, into another, into another because they're in quick succession on a Saturday afternoon. And, you know, the rally's happening in front of you and all you have as a guide are, are the times coming in to be able to tell people what on earth is going on, because, Getting information back in 1999 was a very, very difficult thing to do. So, you know, you, you wouldn't see a driver come through a stage. You had no idea what had happened to them. And that's all you could say in your reports. And then after that weekend was done, that was it. I was completely like, this is this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, I am decided. Like, for, sorry to believe. It was. It was a huge year. Like, people were competing then. I mean, looking back now, it was like Colin, Petter, Gwyndaf. Richard Burns it was like it's such an iconic time in the sport as well do you did you realize then yeah yeah I did I did because it wasn't as if I you know I didn't know what the world championship was because I'd followed it through my teenage years I knew what it was but I followed it on the fringes so it was then having to like try and get back through archives of footage which I was able to access through a friend and watch programs that had gone out previously all on video <laughs> it just it took forever um, but I remember turning up at the it was the race course in Cheltenham where we were based for service and the Fords had just come back from scrutineering the focuses and they were just going round the roundabout and I was like Oh, oh my god there they are and then we arrive and Tommy Mackinnon is there celebrating um, a title and he brings out his car he does donuts in front of all the spectators and he's up on the stage being interviewed and I'm, I was really like a you know kid in a candy shop watching it all but then I had this sick feeling in my stomach it's like this is amazing I love being here but oh my god I've got a report on this event this weekend and I'm so worried it's going to go wrong and luckily it didn't but I knew, you know, there and then after that event, that's what I wanted to to work on. That's what I wanted to do. But I spent the next, yeah, the next two years working predominantly in circuit racing. So I worked on the British Touring Car Championship for the next two years solidly. I did some rallies in between, some British Rally Championship events, some some Peugeot Rally Cup events. Um, and then... To kind of cut a long story short, Greg, my boss, came, had come up with this idea. He wanted to be able to, to, to make sure that people around the world could find out what was happening on an event at any time at all. And various events that you went to around the world, the big proper events like Rally Finland, like Rally GB, would have their own radio stations that would be able to communicate to everyone who's on the event, who's listening in what's going on and Greg thought well why can't we do that on a global scale why can't we have one radio station which does that around the world 
And sometimes listening to Greg talk, you'd be like, yeah, okay, Greg, how are we going to do this? You know, especially me, because I'm very much a, a realist and I will always put forward the kind of oppositions. I suppose it's a bit of a negative trait in a way, but I would always go, yeah, but what about that? What if we can't, what about this? Because I want to go through every option in my mind. Uh, but he was, you know, completely like, well, yeah, we, we, we can do this. We can do this. He said, we'll have, you know, we'll have a studio on event. We'll have someone there who can talk all day, 10 hours a day. We'll have some reporters in the service park, maybe on the stages. And the technology back then was going to be difficult to, to do that. And I was like, yeah, it sounds like a brilliant idea, Greg. I love it. But I said, who are you going to get to talk 10 hours a day on rallying? He was like, well, you. <laughs> you, basically, <laughs> you're, you're going to do it. <laughs> I was like, you gotta be kidding I, can't, I said no one can talk for 10 hours a day on their own on rallying it's like oh we'll, well you know you'll have another presenter you'll be able to do it it's fine and we did our first rally radio event for wrc.com with a it was a brand new refurbished website rally monte carlo 2002 and that was our first event as rally radio and it was a baptism of fire <laughs> to do it to carry it out but it was amazing and that legacy then lasted from 2002 to 2000, uh, 2018 was our last broadcast in Corsica, 2018, because All Live had kind of taken over that year and running them both as separate entities because for the radio, you know, we had to find all the funding ourselves. It came from the manufacturers. Um, and, you know, once the manufacturers were getting All Live, then they... You, obviously didn't want to contribute to a radio as well why have two when you can just have one um which yeah made complete sense hurt like hell but made complete sense uh, but it was a, a wild ride for you know 17 years 16 17 years running well i i didn't run the radio station completely on my own um but there were you know three of us at the beginning it was myself greg strange and chris Rawls who were there right from the beginning and I, I still remember to this day arriving in Nice Airport and Chris was our technical director of the company at the time. And we were meeting him at the airport and he was bringing all of the equipment that we needed for the radio station, which was a lot. And I remember the, the doors opening on the arrivals hall, um, slidey doors just opening. And I caught a glance of him and he had like three huge tall flight cases that he was trying to manhandle out the doors I'm like Jesus Christ how much equipment is this it was ridiculous and it was quite stressful setting it all up for him making it all work making the stream work to wrc.com it sounds so basic to say it now but back in 2002 this was still relatively not massively new but it, yeah it wasn't a real tried and tested easy you can just set up a stream anyone can do it these days it was a little bit difficult back then um make everything work and then and then do it and I remember halfway through the event you know we've been talking for, for hours and we'd set up an email address and we'd forgotten about it we we're like oh shit, we've been talking about it send us an email at blah 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 and we completely forgotten about this email address we we're like where are these emails going and, and Chris was like oh yeah, I need to just add that to our like server type thing. And he did it. And then boop, 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 all these emails just downloaded of people who were listening everywhere. And it was like, this is amazing. People are actually listening to what we're doing. We're not just talking to no one right now. And I have to say, it was really, when we look back on it now, it was really basic service that we provided back in the day because 
you know, we, we were just finding our feet, certainly in, in the first few years. Uh, we were finding what technology worked to do what and you know, getting stage end reporters in came a little bit later on in 2000, well, 2003, we started doing it properly. Um, but we had such a laugh doing it. It was so great. It was so great to be able to be a source of information for people looking for it and, and a source to be able to publicize you know, younger drivers, I suppose, smaller championships that don't get a huge amount of TV coverage. We were there for them. Um, and that was, I think, a, you know, a real strong point of, of the radio coverage. Bex, that's amazing. Like, I'm even more in awe of you now. Super fangirl. <laughs> I've just gone up a level. That was, that's, you're there, like, founding things that, would, you know, today now has been completely influenced and it's still being influenced by what you did those years ago that's amazing. yeah I mean I, I did it I was part of it it was Greg Strange's wonderful idea to do it to have to say he was the the visionary b- behind doing it but it, it Greg was was typical of throwing you an idea it was like he'd like throw in a little grenade but I want to do this and then you had to make it happen <laughs> so <laughs> we were the people having to make it happen I can um, still see a little bit of that now but obviously we're so much luckier with the technology just having been a little bit in the background from the events that I've done it seems a bit like right we've got to do this and you know it's quite reactionary isn't it yeah it is you know it, it is and I, I I can understand there are a lot of people who watch all live think <laughs> well some might think it's it's really slick and it kind of you know it is from a production side of things but you have to be reactionary when things happen, when things go wrong, when dogs bark. <laughs> um, and uh, but I like that element of it. You know, when you have a situation and oh, we've got to sort this out, and we've got to do it now. And, you know, we're not a multi-million dollar production. We're not, not by any stretch of the imagination. And everyone has to, to pull together and work really hard to do different elements of different things. You know, when we're not working on or live, when you're not hearing my voice, I'm out doing something else. I'm interviewing. I'm getting things for, for post-production um, television shows or whatever. Everyone is working 24-7, which is why I find it hilarious when people are like, oh, the map's on the screen. They're having a break. Like, oh, I wish we were. I wish we were having a cup of coffee right now. It's not the case. <laughs> Everyone is working really hard. Until I was there myself to see it with my own eyes, you don't realise how much is going into everything just to make that work, to get yeah. that stage to work. And, and you work so hard as well, having witnessed a little bit of what you do. I've seen the amount of homework that you had to do and just the preparation. And obviously you live and breathe it. And you obviously you're yeah. so passionate about it, which really comes through. But I don't think people can necessarily see how much you do. And it's like the amount of sleep you don't get. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I'm lucky. I think I, I get a little bit more than some people. I, I feel for like our stage crews, the guys who go out and will set up the cameras, the static cameras that are around the stages. They're out at three, four o'clock in the morning. You know, they're getting back super late at night. They've de-rigged one stage. They're setting up another. And, you know, those guys, they don't really get any kind of glory. They're there in all weathers cabling for miles and miles because that's the way still things still have to be done and you know they they really do put in the hours I mean we we finish late we start early um but at least I can you know I've got a warm commentary box that I'm sat in during the day I'm not out in the elements although the funny thing about doing the Arctic rally last year was we were doing our media zones now where we interview the drivers because of COVID is is split 
So we have something called a high density media zone, which is where people are tested prior to the event and they can have access to the service park and a low density one where which is for media who are kind of coming back and forth going to the stages then coming back into the service park and the high density media zone which was just me at the arctic rally was outside and the low density one was inside and we had one evening where um it was snowing at the media zone which was very pretty it was very beautiful and you know when we started off the media zone me my cameraman tommy r2 my sound guy we were all like oh this is lovely isn't this pretty then an hour and a half later i had a like a huge tump of snow on my head and it just settled <laughs> on the top of my head and the, all the drivers are laughing at me a few kind of knocked it off a few times but it just kept building this little snowman that was growing out of the top of my head um and it was cold <laughs> it was it was that was cold but then you know everyone you think you, you kind of ignore it and it's the same as you will know being at the stage ends you're out there in the elements but as soon as the adrenaline gets going and the cars start coming and you're asking questions, it, you know, everything is kind of out of the window. It doesn't matter if 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 it's blowing a gale. I have to say I was watching coverage of um, uh, the Roger Albert Clark last week in the really difficult conditions. And Matt Cotton was interviewing um, at one of the stage ends where it was snowing and the wind was blowing this bitter, icy wind. And. I really felt for him because you could see he was visibly shaking and he could barely get his words out and he just had to give up. Technology gave up. I think his body gave up as well. And you think, yeah, I know, I know that feeling. I know that feeling of being out in the elements, but you want to bring all the knowledge to everyone. You want to make sure that people know what's going on. Um, yeah, I've been out in all kinds of conditions interviewing in torrential rain in Argentina one year in the service park, we were interviewing drivers before they left the service and it was my job to do that. And every driver who opened the door was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> are you here? Like, I know, just tell me how you're feeling. Are you looking forward to the stage? Well, I don't know what to say to you. I can barely see <laughs> for the rain, but you still love it. You know, that I, the, there's nothing I would moan about with my job. Yeah, we all get tired. There's it's little hours of sleep, but everyone loves it so you know you'll come in you'll go oh we should have had longer in bed but then as soon as you're into it as soon as you hear a rally car or see one that's it you forget about all of that because you you're into the day and you know th there have been people who've come to work with us and it's not for them because it's brutal it is brutal hours it the work I said the working conditions it's, it's, they're not bad don't I don't want to play this like it's an awful place to work it's not at all but it's just it's long long days as you well know you know we start sometimes we're on air at 5 5 30 in the morning for first service and then you know we're leaving the service park at nine and during that entire time it's it's full on so you leave like oh knackered but because we love it we're on a bit of a buzz whereas some other people who don't love it are like yeah I can earn more money doing something far easier than this and they're off very quickly but it's not many of those because too many people get bitten by the rallying bug yeah which is good oh yeah for sure I must say as well one of the things that stood out for me was the amount of um, women that I was working with it was everyone was really really welcoming and I think again because you don't really see the behind the scenes and I think I'm quite used to working in a quite a male heavy environment. I was like, this is great. Like there's just so many girls involved, so many women involved and obviously everyone teams together. Maybe you've kind of set a president and, you know, obviously Kiri works really hard and obviously got Molly out on stages a lot. Do you feel that's always been that way in the sport? Do you, I mean, do you even think about it? Uh, I, I, I've 
got to be perfectly honest, I don't think about it so much anymore. Um, when I was first involved in the championship, there weren't many female journalists. Um, I, I could count them on one hand in the championship. And you noticed it then. And I, I think I noticed it only because I felt a bit under pressure and needed to prove myself and maybe felt it a little bit more because I was coming into a room full of male journalists. Um, and that's something maybe I put on myself rather than it, than it being, you know, I never felt, I never, and not at one minute have I ever felt working in this championship from anyone else who works in it. Never have I felt that I shouldn't be here because I'm female. Um, I've never got that vibe. I've got it from others out, um, you know, when I've had, uh, not in a nasty way, but I remember a classic moment when um, Guy, who was just spectating, um, and he was in the service park and he was talking to a colleague of mine who was male, uh, who had just come into the championship. So he just started working on the championship. And he was asking him about the Mitsubishi that Gigi Gali was driving. And he was directing his questions to him. That was fine. And the guy was like, oh, no. he said, I, I don't know anything about it. You, you need to talk to her. But he wouldn't look at me. <laughs> this guy wouldn't look at me. And he just kept pounding the questions at my colleague. He was like, may I be there five minutes? I don't know anything. I don't know anything at all. And that is the only time I've ever thought, hold on a second. <laughs> Why aren't you even looking at me? Why aren't you talking to me? Well, I was like, well, you know, his loss, he's not going to get the information he needs because I'm not going to tell him now because no. he's not even giving me the time of day. But I, I, I don't, you know, it's not, I've never felt in my working environment that I've ever been singled out or preferred because I'm female or that I, you know, it's been the reverse and I've been sidelined because I'm female. I know it's still, it's still a kind of hot topic, but I'm very much in the same kind of frame of mind as, as Michelle Mouton is. I watched her um, documentary. I love Michelle. We've spent a lot of time together over the years chatting about this very thing. And I, I'm exactly in her frame of mind. You know, it doesn't matter <laughs> what sex you are. You're there to be the best at, at what, you, what, what you do. And that's how I've always seen it from my perspective. I work exceptionally hard. And I would love to, and I, I hope to think that, you know, I, I bring a certain standard to what I do. And that's great. As long as I'm satisfied with what I've done and I feel it's good enough, that's great for me. It's when I feel I haven't done a job well enough or I haven't put enough effort in, then I'm disappointed in myself. But I, I set the bar for myself pretty high. And it's not because I'm a female in motorsport. It's because I want to be good at what I do. And that, that's it. And I, I'm really pleased that I don't don't feel any differences. Sometimes, you know, my friends will, my female friends will say to me when they see pictures of me hosting a press conference and, you know, there's a room full of men and they're like, well, don't you feel intimidated? I'm like, well, no. The last time I felt intimidated at work was the first time I interviewed Carlos Sainz. And I just couldn't quite believe I was interviewing Carlos Sainz back in 2001, wherever it was. And he was eating a Bourbon biscuit. And I was like, I'll wait for you to finish eating your biscuit. And he was like, no, no, just crack on. And I was like, oh, God, it's Carlos Sainz. He's got a mouthful of biscuit. He's a... And I, I was completely intimidated by him. But, you know, that was years ago. And I, I you know, you, it's great in our job um, because you can interview anyone at any possible time. You know, you're, 
our bosses at the promoter are great and we get you know if we if we get some great guests coming in or you know some complete motorsport legends then they'll you know can you can you go and interview so can you go and interview Ari Vatanen can you and it's like yeah great because you know so much about this person you feel you can just chat to them which you know I I don't really like the word interview because it sounds so formal and that sounds intimidating in itself doesn't it so I always tell anyone that I'm interviewing it's just a chat it's just me you you know me or you know you've listened to me you've heard me whatever don't don't be afraid I'm not going to bite your head off I'm not going to ask you any nasty questions um, because I think that's how you get the best out of people is just being as as natural as you possibly can be you are able to get out of some drivers things that I've not seen other people and that's you know I've not watched every single interview from everybody on the WRC live but I was quite fascinated how you're able to coax things out and that wasn't even in like a you know you're not trying to get the best answer to get the best headline you just were able to in a very human way get out of drivers when you know, it's a real big stressful situation for them isn't it obviously they love what they do but you know it's really high intense thing to have to have an interview at the end of a stage or at the end of the day they've got so many things to think about I guess that's your secret then just talk to them like yeah I think it's yeah it's talk to them like they're human beings for one I mean you know these guys are and they are purely human beings you know they're not curing cancer out there they're driving rally cars quickly and they are amazing and I have a huge amount of respect for what they do and I I think well and I'd like to believe that that has shown over the years how much respect I have for them and you know and I, I feel it back from them and it is it is just chatting with them and being normal I think and they know that I am not going to uh, I'm not going to cheat them you know I'm not going to ask them or trick them into questions yeah if I want to get something out of them I'll do it in a nice way I'll be charming about it you know Andrea Adamo said recently um, I think we was yeah we were in Rally Estonia and uh, I can't remember exactly what had happened now but it was a team tactic that he pulled um, someone I'm sure out there will remember exactly what it is. My brain isn't on its A game today. And I remember interviewing him and he thought that I would come in with a question about what he'd done, pulling team tactics immediately, but I didn't. I started with something a little bit gentle and then I went on to another question. Then I hit him with the, you know, why don't you just own it and, and say that you, you've pulled team tactics? Why have you dressed up the situation? And he was like, aha. He's like, I've worked out your strategy now. This is what you do. You lull people into a false sense of security. <laughs> then you hit them with the killer question. And in a way, yes, that has been my strategy over the years. You know, you, you ask good questions, you ask the positive questions first. And if there is something a bit negative or territory that's difficult, then you go into it. Sometimes I, I completely do differently, though, and hit them with a the negative first. It depends what the situation is. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's sport at the end of the day. Um, you know, <laughs> I've just been listening now to all that's happening in politics right now and, and questions that are being asked there. And you think, gosh, when you kind of transfer it to our sport and the politics we have in our sport, it is just sport and it's fun at the end of the day. Um, so you don't want to make anything, you know, too serious, but you, at the same time, you want to get the good answers out of them. Can I ask a mean question that you've just said about lulling people in? I'm not doing this to you at all, but there is... <laughs> here we go. Oh, here we go. <laughs> for this. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. But 
obviously we all have our moments where we don't want to talk and definitely drivers sometimes just they don't know what they're allowed to say or you know they don't want to say or they're too annoyed to say what they really think have you ever had like a super awkward one where you're just like come on mate give me something (laughs) I've had lots of awkward interviews um you know immediately springs to mind is Oit Tanak who is he, he knows he can be a bit of a devil in interviews because he'll only share exactly what he wants to share. But if you keep plugging at him, then he will break. And this is something I've learned is that he can give you all the yes, no, or, you know, you'll say to him, oi, the sky is very blue today. And he'll say, no, it's pink. Just because <laughs> he wants to be completely the opposite to what you're saying. You're like, ah, oh, Okay, but if you just keep on at him, he will eventually get there. Um, I've never had anyone who's been really, that I, that sticks in my mind, to be honest. You know, some drivers, especially internationally, can struggle with their confidence in their language skills a little. And you you have to, you know, let, let that go because they're building up their English language skills. And sometimes they don't answer as fully as they would like to because they're just not confident. And the only way to to make them more confident is to keep interviewing them. And and Yari Hootenen is is a classic of this. I remember Hyundai asking me when he started working for them, please, can you interview him as much as possible to be able to, you know, bring his confidence level up? And it's the same with with many, many drivers. I talk about Sebastian Auger a lot whenever I'm interviewed, because when I first started interviewing him, he really didn't speak English very well at all. Um, it was always Julian Ingracia who right. would speak for him in, in any interviews, really. Um, I host the FIA press conference pre and, and post on the events. And the year that Ogier was uh, in the junior championship, they, they won so many events. And he was always in the press conference. And the only thing he would really say at the beginning was when I would congratulate him and ask him how he was feeling, he would say... Um, thank you. I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, we have had a good rally, but we must be prudent. That was it. Nothing, nothing more than that. And then I'd switch to Julian in Gracia and he would tell me about the rally in any moments and difficult areas. And it's interesting because I'd just done a backstories podcast with, with Julian and he, he talked about it in there, you know, how when he was at school, he knew that he had to have a good grasp of the English language if he wanted to go further in life. So he learned English very, very young at school and, you know, kept at it, kept at it. But a lot of drivers, and Ogier's not alone, Loeb was exactly the same. Loeb actually ran away from me in an interview once. He'd been brought to Rally Sweden. He wasn't doing the event, but he'd done Monte Carlo. Um, and he was brought to Rally Sweden to do interviews. And I think to do the recce at the time. It's a long time ago now. I'm sure this was 2002, maybe three. Anyway, uh, I saw him and I thought, well, he'd be great to have on, on, you know, on Rally Radio. Brilliant. I'll I'll grab Loeb and we've got this little exclusive with him. And I, you know, grabbed his arm and said, introduce myself. You know, can I interview you? Yes, yes. (laughs) I I start with my question and he just looks at me and turns on his heel and just disappears. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done? He asked a really, you know, basic kind of question. Where's he gone? And I, I, I could remember myself going, because there was a lot of journalists around me, a lot of male journalists around me. And I remember going quite red. I was embarrassed. I blush very easily anyway. But I was like, oh, my goodness, 
my, my cheeks are hot here. And then all of a sudden I see him walking back towards me and he's bringing his PR, Marie Pierre, because he can't un quite understand what I'm asking him. So she is on hand to translate all my questions into English so that then he can answer in English. And it was like, oh, okay, crisis averted, crisis averted. But his English also wasn't very strong when he started the championship. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes there have been awkward interviews in that sense, um, only because they haven't quite understood what I've said. And Gilles Panizzi did exactly the same thing as Lowe did. He ran away from me once to grab someone to, to say, what is she saying? <laughs> That's what, he said. what is she saying? Uh, it's like I, I kick myself because, you know, we talk about all these drivers learning English and, okay, it's the international language of the FIA and motorsport, but, you know, for us in the UK, uh, I've found it so huge a thing since I've worked in this sport. We just don't appreciate that we have to learn other languages as well in yeah, this country. Old, you know, yeah. my French skills are still really, really ropey. My Spanish is better than my French. My Italian is okay. I, you know, I can order us drinks around the country. And remember, Mads Osberg asked me in. Yeah, I can keep us alive. Yeah. That's what I said to Mads Osberg in <laughs> in Monza in commentary when we were asking about languages. I can keep us alive, but you know, I couldn't. I couldn't say motorsport references in another language no so you know we expect a lot of these drivers coming in not only do they have to compete and perform but we want them to speak perfect English as well and you definitely have to be very I think generous with people um, with your time with someone you're interviewing whose language skills aren't strong and keep interviewing them because it helps even if they're like oh god she's coming to interview me again just keep going it's gonna help you <laughs> you can love me with a microphone soon I good. promise you <laughs> now I'm, I'm conscious of time because I've, I've kept it quite a lot but um so I'm gonna do a semi kind of quick fire round because I feel like you'll be able to expand but I did want to ask though before I go into that just very briefly because mm. Obviously, me watching the sport now is going to be very different to how people viewed the sports of maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And because you have been in it, you know, such a long time, have yeah. you seen how drivers who are still competing, who are competing at the beginning when you started, and also drivers who are new, has it changed? Like, has people, you know, are the pressures the yeah. same? Are the the expectation levels the same like how has it changed for drivers it's all think? increased i i would say the expectation the pressure is increased the workload i think that's the main thing for me you know when i started in the days of, of colin mccray richard burns tommy mackinnon um you know i remember being on events and seeing those guys out for dinner every night pretty much nowadays you know the drivers are obsessed by watching you know, videos um, in car and making sure that they're up to speed. And there's so much available to them now to be able to prepare them for a rally. The work ethic has just gone up hugely. And I think the physicality as well, um, you know, they're, they're athletes in, in terms of the, the work that they do to prepare for an event. That's different to, to when I started. So there's two things, there's a physicality and, and the workload. I think the pressure on them to deliver is, is much greater because they're all working so hard so it makes the competition higher and higher all the time. Um, sometimes I think drivers do overwork, especially with watching the videos. Maybe it is a bit too much 
for some and they've reined it in. They, the, uh, Gus Greensmith is a perfect example. He said, you know, he's he's actually stopped watching so much because he's just overthinking everything. And that can be, you know, a bad thing in itself. But that's what I think definitely that is one of the, the major differences, the resource available now to a driver with all the onboards, other people's onboards they can watch. You know, they can compare and contrast themselves to Sebastian Ogier and, and see you know, which line is better, how they dealt with that corner, where their braking zone is. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, and I think there is a danger then of just overworking that element and not relying maybe sometimes on your natural ability and trusting yourself too much. Yeah, I did hear actually a rumour went round that one of the accidents this year was caused by a driver changing a note after watching the videos just that one more time. Yeah, that, that's a danger. That is, I think it, it's always a danger of, yeah, you've got to have trust in yourself and your own ability. Uh, you know, not trusting yourself enough, I think, is one of the major factors these days because they can watch so many other things. I like, you know, now in teams, information is widely shared. So in the Toyota team, all the information from the engineers, everything is shared together so that every driver has the complete package available, which is great. But then it's the individual drivers themselves, which are pushing themselves maybe too far sometimes to be able to gain the results. And it's, it's when they start to relax a bit, that's when the results come in. Which is classic, isn't it? It yeah. can be said for so many things in life. Yeah, massively. Okay, well, these are kind of quick questions. So, okay, if I can ask you, which event yeah. has the best fans? Oh, uh, Argentina. Argentina has the best fans, I would say. Uh, it, from a passion level, it's. I mean, there's so many fans around the world in so many different events, but when you go to Argentina it's something different altogether you know the fact that they you know they're singing they're cheering the camaraderie um and they they love it it, to an extreme and they show it I think you know sometimes you go to put like Finland for example huge amount of how I would describe professional fans they know exactly (laughs) what they're doing they know everything there is to know about every single driver but maybe the passion doesn't show in their demeanor whereas in Argentina it completely does. And you've got, you know, huge towns which will be out in force for the rally and they might not know every single driver. They might not know who's won what. They don't care. They want to <laughs> see the cars going quickly through Mina Clavero or El Condor. Um, that's what the, it's all. And it's a huge weekend for them. You know, they're up camping as, at the start of the week. I remember going on the recce um, for Rally Argentina and seeing already camper vans and tents being set up on El Condor. And you're like, it's a whole week until we get <laughs> to the event. What are you get? And I think maybe they were just marking out this spot. I don't know. But there's something special about being in Argentina and the fans there. It, yeah, definitely Argentina for fans. Best driver to interview? Oh, oh that's a really difficult one, young Sorry. Jade. <laughs> um, best driver to interview? Oh. doesn't have to be a favorite because I know you probably don't want to be biased no and I, honestly I have not got a favorite driver I've been asked that question a lot but I don't have a favorite driver favorite interview oh that's really hard I don't know you know part of me actually wants to say Oit Tanak 
because he's such a challenge. But when he relaxes and when he tells you things, it's so insightful. Um, yeah, Oit's got to be up there as one of the best to interview for me, as one of my favourites. And yeah, I mean, everyone's going to go, oh, but it's probably Ogier because he's been an absolute joy to interview for, well, since 2008. You know, I've seen him through his <laughs> his crazy years when he was really fired up and furious with life and everyone and had a real sting in his tail because he wanted to prove himself and he felt like he was being held back. He was really exciting in those days because he would say exactly what he thought. He still does now, but he said it with quite a bit of passion back then. So, yeah, OJ and Oit. Hardest event, most difficult event. Monte Carlo. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Monte Carlo is the hardest event of the season. Um, Next year, we move back to it being based fully in Monte Carlo. uh, But when it's split between Gap and Monte Carlo, which is a four hour drive in between both destinations, it's very, very difficult because you're up and down the road a couple of times a week if you're doing a launch down in Monte Carlo. But it's just brutal hours, really early starts, very, very late finishes, a lot of mileage everyone's broken after Monty <laughs> it's Boy, not just not. the drivers and, and the gravel crews who are, who are broken we all are we need like a holiday it's the first round of the season and you're <laughs> like I need sleep <laughs> yeah that's definitely the toughest event your favorite year that you've done so far oh that's a really good question um favorite year yeah, I can't pick a favourite year. That's going to sound dreadful. If I had to, on pain of death, it would be 2003. The year that Petter Solberg won the championship. Um, the year that the second year the radio was running and we kind of knew what we were doing at that point. <laughs> Everything was a little bit easier going to, you know, uh, going back to the same countries then. I can't remember whether in 2003 we were on 16 events or not a year then. We might have been. But yeah, during the early days of my WRC career, we were on 16 events. Um, But yeah, 2003, purely because I had a bit more confidence that year in what we were doing. And the radio listeners around the world were a huge amount of fun that year. Rally GB, where Petter won the championship final round. I remember we were testing the distance of our radio mics. So we got our stage end reporter, Dan, he was from Australia, to bike out to the furthest part of the service park do our radio mics work at that point and you know I'm in the studio I'm like Dan can you hear me yes I can hear you can you yes I can hear you and we had a couple of emails coming in and there were people listening and one said listening to you test radio mics it's really exciting I know that's sad (laughs) (laughs) but I was like mate I know how you feel at that event we had um, the capacity on our radio servers had to be updated three times for the amount of listeners that we had. Oh my God, so man. many people excited to see what the, the result of the championship would be that year. And that was then really exciting for us involved. It's like, oh, the server's gone again. We need to add another 5,000, 10,000 places. Like, oh my God, brilliant, great, stick them on there. Um, so yeah, 2003 for that reason. Have you got a most memorable interview that stands out for you? As it is the best, most emotional, really think, wow, that was a really important moment for me in my career maybe. Actually, yes, I have. And it was it's exceptionally recent. And it's the recent podcast I did with Julian Ingracia because I, I almost cried. Well, I did cry when we finished because it was mm-hmm. it was so 
good. He was so revealing, not from anything I did. It was just him telling stories and, you know, things that had happened in the past that I'd never heard before. And just this eloquence that he had telling me these stories. And I think it was just, yeah, the culmination of a career, knowing his career was coming to an end as well. And that he's signing it off. He was the only interview. He, he, I'm the only person he spoke to in between uh, the last event in Monza because he wanted to be in a bubble of not doing any media activities. So I was the only person to speak to him before he actually got to Monza. And that felt quite special in itself. And then hearing all these stories and knowing that you know there's going to be a future chapter for him somewhere in rallying, um, yeah, I, we kind of, we closed the Zoom call and I had, I had a little cry and then I got on with my life. <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> that was pretty important for me. Yeah, so I have a little story about him actually. Yeah. So I was in the Kenyan airport thinking this is my only WRC event that I'm going to do. I've got to get a picture with him because my friends, Hannah and Josh, who are navigators, yeah. they both really wanted a photo. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get a photo. So I asked him and he was like, oh no, you can have my trophy. I'll take a picture of you. <laughs> That's why I haven't got a picture with him, just his trophy. Yeah, he's, he's, he is honestly such a special person. He really is. Um, and he has been for his entire career. Literally last question. New cars, new season. Mm. What's your thoughts? Ooh. I think, I think Danny Sordo said it best, actually, in Monza. I'm excited for a new season. Don't get me wrong. I really am. I think, you know, we have to move with the times things are changing we have to move with it otherwise the championship is going to die you know manufacturers are competing in rallying to showcase their cars and to sell their cars and that's unfortunately something we always have to remember at the back of our minds because we love cars and we love hearing the noise we love everything about them but sometimes i think people forget that the manufacturers are there to sell their cars to, to a wider nation. And to do that, we need to change and move with the times and change the technology. And Danny Sordo said to me in Monza, he was like, every year, and Danny Sordo's been in a world rally car for 15 years. Um, he said, every year, he said, when we change, or not every year, he said, but every time we change the regulations, everyone says, it's not going to be as good as before. It's not going to be as good. And he said, eventually it's better than it was before when the cars changed in 2017 immediately you know they, they some drivers weren't fans you know it took a lot of getting used to um and then they loved them and now you know they're saying they're the best car that we'll, we'll never have cars like this again maybe we won't but i'm the kind of person and i always have been that thinks to the future rather than always harking back to the past you're never going to hear me say it, it, it's not going to be as good as the Group B era. I am not that kind of person. Um, I am always looking to the future and I've loved every single evolution we've had so far of World Rally Car. I appreciate them all for their individual qualities. And I think, yeah, next year it's going to be completely different and maybe it will be a bit difficult at the start. Drivers adapting to them, the manufacturer, the teams rather, adapting to the technology and honing. I think that's the important thing, honing the technology to make it better and better. Um, but no, I'm, I'm excited about the season ahead. Thanks, that's amazing. Thank you so much. That's like a perfect interview. Thank you for giving a bit more about you and your professional opinion and stuff. It's really great. So thank you so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. And that was Bex Williams. 
Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As you could probably tell, I really did enjoy chatting to Bex. It was nice to talk to her when it wasn't like a, a flat out, mad busy WRC event. She, uh, bless her socks, she was being so kind and patient with me asking questions and poor old Chip in the background wants to go for a walk. But that was, uh, that was great. I have got another interview in the pipeline ready to just be edited and put out there. I will try my absolute best to get out before New Year but I am going to the Forest Experience Rally School tomorrow to help Ross do some grading and get the stage ready to have its rest in January. So if I have time, I will get it out. But in the meantime, have a super duper festive time and a happy new year. Thank you so much for listening.